Hi, this is Jordan from the Orwell Foundation, the charity which runs the Orwell Youth Prize. The Orwell Youth Prize is an annual programme for students aged 12 to 18 and culminates in a writing prize. The prize and programmes around it introduce young people to the power of political language and provoke them to think critically about the world around them. We've teamed up with Compass to produce a new podcast series where all Youth Prize winners and runners-up discuss the themes emerging from their writing with leading politicians, activists, journalists and thinkers right here on the It's Bloody Complicated feed. From social housing to the power of dystopian fiction, subscribe to It's Bloody Complicated now to hear these urgent new political voices in conversation with the likes of John Harris, Dawn Butler and more. If you would like more information about the Orwell Youth Prize, visit our website at orwellfoundation.com. Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in the live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on the Compass Podcast, we're joined by our friend, John Alexander, to talk about his fabulous new book, Citizens, Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us, and Sue Goss, author of our own publication, Garden Minds, and the brilliant book, Open Tribe, who will help us explore John's book and its implications for Compass. We'll come to John and Sue in a minute. Before we do that, I'm really delighted to be joined by another great friend of Compass, Luke Cooper. But I'm not delighted by the reasons why we've got Luke on tonight, and we'll get him on again you know, for more positive reasons sometime in the future. Luke is one of the leading lights of a fantastic organisation, Another Europe is Possible, um, and he works at Ideas, which is the LSE's in-house foreign policy think tank. And he's author of a very relevant book, Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy, which is published by Bristol University Press last year. And Luke is going to help us get to grips with the issue of the day, sadly, that of Ukraine. So um, thanks very much for joining us kind of a a last minute thing, Luke. Really great to have you on. So do you want to just kind of kick off and tell us where you think the latest state of play is in terms of Ukraine, the forces, what's happening, you know, and and a bit about who knows, but where do you think it's going to go? Yeah, great to be here, Neil. And thanks for inviting me on. Um, It's good to be with friends in the Compass um, family to talk all of this through and to try and make sense of it. I know, like everyone, we've all been probably glued to the television screens following this over the last couple of weeks and indeed before. As you say, I've been thinking about it and responding to it at LSE academically, talking to people on the ground, trying to collate really good quality information to get a handle on everything. 
and uh, make sure the information gets out of there, out there. And uh, we and also trying to respond to it as another Europe is possible too, with an international solidarity and um, response. So I think, like in terms of where we are, I mean, it's it's a, it's a truism, but I think it's a good place to start that we've seen remarkable uh, Ukrainian resistance um, against this horrific Russian um, invasion, still less than two weeks old, but not go- going to plan. I think it's fair to say uh, they the Ukrainians have used insurgency tactics uh, very successfully. They've been very disciplined and they clearly have dramatic, very strong popular support. We've also tragically seen you know, really appalling Russian atrocities already. An investigation has been opened for war crimes at the ICC already. Um, Kharkiv in the uh, east of Ukraine, some of the images coming out of that city as a result of Russian artillery bombing are really, really horrific. It's a, it's a historic city, so a real tragedy that has unfolded there. And um, one, only one city, though, has fallen to the Russian forces, Kurzan, uh, in the south. And we saw those also incredible uh, footage of unarmed protesters taking to the streets in opposition. The Russian army still doesn't control the skies. It would have hoped to uh, have air superiority at this stage. Uh, it pr- has probably, I think most observers think it has held some of its air power back. It's not entirely clear why. Maybe worried about uh, losing some planes and pilots. Although, of course, many Ukrainians have been arguing for a no-fly zone, but I'm sure it's a tricky issue that we might come back to. So that's basically where I see things um, at the moment. And Luke, what I mean, what 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 is this about? I mean, because it seems like a you know a, a pretty mad move, doesn't it? A, a huge country which is probably unoccupiable on a kind of peaceful, long-term, sustainable basis. Russia becoming a kind of pariah, uh, rogue state. What what does Putin want out of this? So I suppose there's two ways of approaching that question of what is this about. One, as you say, is what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin. That's a really hard <laughs> question to answer. Um, it, of course, that doesn't stop us all like discussing exactly that question over and over again for the last few months. That's, so it's really difficult to say. I think what we can say about the phenomenon of Putinism, we can say, well, what is this not about? And I don't think that this is really about NATO expansion. Um, I'm not a supporter of NATO-like military alliances. And I think that um, NATO expansion in the 1990s was certainly a historic error and a mistake. Um, It's promoting a kind of militarized politics of deterrence and nuclear deterrence, where I think we should be talking about collective security structures through the United Nations. So that's just what I think about things, right? But that, that's clearly not the cause of this conflict. And no, no, that's what Putin has used as an excuse. And I think where the West does have much more culpability is the extreme economic uh, restructuring that it, it basically imposed to some degree on Russia and other post-communist states in the 1990s that blurred the relationship between legal capitalism and organized crime and led to the development of this really horrible um, oligarchic uh, class that basically stole, got their wealth by stealing it from the Russian people. And of course, Putin's rise is inseparable 
from that oligarchic class because his initial base of support within Russia came from the idea that I will tame the oligarchs. I will put. I will restore Russian pride. I will return Russia to its political stability or some degree of political stability. And and in a way, before it was a popular slogan, slogan said, make Russia great again, right? We will give you pride again in our nation. And that's basically what Putinism is. Um, so we, like many autocrats who have been in power for a long time, I think that it's at that stage where you move to the mind of Putin. And I, I think that this is a huge miscalculation. I suppose the one thing that I didn't mention in my brief outline that is really important. And I think probably one of the most troubling or worrying parts of the whole situation, and there were no good options here, but one of the most troubling and worrying is the economic counter-war on Russia. Probably necessary um, probably to say that we had to do this, but I mean, the effects turning Russia, an economy of its size, into the world's most sanctioned economy ever, uh, the effects on ordinary Russian people, I think, are, are really worrying and really scary. And I think on the left, that, those are the, that's the issue that we need to be thinking most about. How long do these sanctions last? Um, is there a way out of these sanctions for Russia? And what are the wider implications for the rest of the global economy and for ordinary people all over the world of that economic war? Because it's got a lot of potential to get very nasty. Yeah, and a huge worry about how nasty it can get. So in the last kind of you know few minutes, Luke, and sorry we haven't got more time, but we'll no, bring no. you back to have a longer conversation. You know, hopefully about when the you know the awful conflict is over. But I mean, I I, I buy a lot of the lessons learned. You know, if you compare you know what we did after you know what happened to Europe after forty five with the Marshall Plan compared to what happened in you know after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's you know completely different. And why didn't we take that much more? So what other lessons are to be learned, and what else should we be expecting of progressive governments? And what should we be doing as you know progressive activists? You know, in all of our helplessness, what was, what should we be demanding of our government, and what should we be doing ourselves? Yeah, so I think the the UK government are, are broadly right um, when they say we should support the democratic Ukrainian government and we should be careful about further military escalation. So no, no fly zone. And I agree with them on that. Where I think they could be doing much more, and it relates to this issue of the economics, um, is on the debt. Ukraine has a debt of 94 billion. Another Europe is running a campaign at the moment to say drop the debt. Uh, Caroline Lucas asked Liz Truss about it directly in Parliament today, and Liz Truss did indicate support for dropping the debt of Ukraine and support for more economic aid. So I think that's really important. And secondly, of course, where the government have been horrible uh, is over the Ukrainian refugees, really way to the right, much more extreme than anyone else in Europe on this question at the moment, refusing to give a basic um, principle that Ukrainian refugees that have a reason to come to the UK and want to come to the UK for family or other reasons should be welcome here. So I think that's where progress, those two issues, I think, are where progressives should be really orientating. Well, thanks so much for giving us that, that insight and that overview, Luke. We'll get you back on to talk about this in a kind of deeper way. And good luck with all your work and let us know what we can do to help. And we'll talk again soon, all right? Brilliant. Thank great, you. Great Cheers. To see you. Thanks, Luke. And, and, and when we come, if we, have, if we need to come back to this, which I kind of bit of me hopes we don't, 
you know, then we'll have a, a proper session on that, the proper questions from people and be thinking about what we, you know, what we need to do. But we didn't want to kind of, you know, have a, a pod at this moment without at least beginning to nod to that. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Clive. Here's Clive on why he joined the Compass community. My name's Clive Lewis. I'm a Labour MP for Norwich South. I've been involved with Compass for seven years or more and a member for a few years now. My involvement with Compass first started because it was the first left-wing organisation I saw that was really pushing forward the environmental agenda. This was, this was years ahead of anything that was being talked about in Labour at the time, and I thought it was fantastic. I keep supporting Compass today because it's a refuge you know, in, a, in a political environment, which, to be quite frank, is extremely tribal, it's extremely difficult. It's the culture of Compass. It's about asking difficult questions and acknowledging that there will be differences. But actually those differences are a strength, not a weakness. You can be in any faction of the Labour Party or any faction of the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats or any other progressive organisation or in no political party. Just someone who's interested in the world around them and wants to see the world change for the better. It's where I get my political sustenance from and, and it means a lot to me to be a part of that community. And that's why I would wholeheartedly endorse it to you. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. And now back to the conversation. So back to the book. Welcome, John Alexander. Welcome, Sue Goss. John Alexander, how lovely to have you on. We always start with a how are you? You And bizarrely, where are you? <laughs> well, the where, the where are you has the particularly surreal answer, given that I'm, I'm currently lodged in Neil's back bedroom. Um, his, his taste is infinitely better than mine, we shall say. Uh, I, I'm doing all right. I, 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 and I, I think a lot of the conversation we can have, we, we should talk more about, about Ukraine as well. I mean, obviously, we're living in a tragic moment in time, right? Like, it's, it's horrendous that it has come to this. And all of us, I think, are carrying that at some level. So, so to answer a how are you question with a, with a glib I'm good is, is not going to happen. Equally, though, I'm, I am seeing such hope and power in this moment. I, I don't, like, I think... I love, great to hear from Luke, his insight, tremendous. And, and I would sort of add, there's, there's so much in this moment that speaks to some of the ideas I'm talking about in the book as well. This, this idea that there is a rising kind of energy of people just getting involved and sorting things out and actually working together informally. And we're, we're fixing a lot of the problems of our world and, and doing some really good work on this. I just, uh, Titus Alexander was posting in the chat some of the things about people posting labels and questions in on sort of accurate updates on the on the war in Russia on Google Maps we I was I posted the link to to a thing called callrussia.org where people can kind of phone log in and, and effectively do sort of phone blessing telling people in Russia what's going on there's a huge amount going on sort of grassroots whether it's whether it's the offline uh, examples that we're that I was just mentioning that the, the and or, or whether it's the the whole swathe of open source intelligence gathering that's going on the work of movements like the the uh, the anonymous collective they declared cyber war on Russia and 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 just the other day I think put put accurate updates onto several of of Russia's state television channels these are 
these are sort of citizen-driven movements, self-organizing movements, are actually playing an incredibly powerful and positive role in this. And, and I take a great deal of hope from that. The thing I take most hope from, I think, is, is the way Zelensky himself has kind of limped into that and actually encouraged that kind of activity and directed it. And I think there's something huge that we might sort of dig into more in that our leaders, that other leaders could learn from in, in the way he has approached and acknowledged and uh, sought to encourage that kind of grassroots citizen involvement. Yeah, very good, very good. And Sue, before, just say, how are you and where are you before we delve into John a bit more and then come back to you in a second? How are you and where are you? I'm, I'm as, as good as can be expected, I think, is the phrase that we're all starting to use. I'm sad, I'm depressed, but I'm nevertheless in my garden. Um, I'm, people can see, I'm in my farmhouse in, in, East, in Kent, having a quiet day. Okay, well, we'll come back to you in a minute. Now, John, you're, you're aware I'm going to ask you this question. You can expand and, and, and give us the backstory, but tell us, are you going to be sick on this podcast tonight? <laughs> Neil did ask my permission to ask him this. Now, uh, the, the, what, what Neil's referring to is, I, I, the, I guess the sort of birth of the story of the, of the book that I've written comes when I was working in the advertising industry back in the early 2000s, where I sort of stumbled into that work. And I, I stumbled into it off the back of really kind of growing up in the and, and choosing my making my career choices in the kind of 9-11 world and, and in the context of the leaders of the so-called free world going out and saying citizens, citizens of the world go shopping like st- stand up for our rights by doing that and so I went to work in the advertising industry but but I began to have pretty serious doubts about the work I was doing fairly early on and my first boss described my job to me saying the average consumer sees something like 3,000 commercials and messages a day and your job is to cut through that and I was I was kind of happy for a while as I say sort of lost in the story being like competing to cut through and then I started to ask like what are we doing when we tell ourselves we're consumers 3,000 odd times a day like what is that story and what what am I part of and what Neil's referring to when he asks me am I going to be sick on the podcast is I went through a a period of time when I I stood on Oxford Circus tube station every evening and was physically sick uh, because I was I was waking up to the story that I was part of telling I guess um, and so, yeah, I, I hope I'm, uh, I'm now sufficiently past that phase of, uh, of staring down, in, down at the gutter of consumerism and, and now looking up at the stars of Neil Lawson and Sue Goss. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah. I think you're a long way, a long way ahead of it. And, and that thing that, you know, some, you know, we're bad people and then we become good people. I mean, that's just a nonsense, isn't it? It's all part of a process of us of learning and we're a mixture of all of these things. But I'm glad to have you on the uh, uh, away from the dark side, John. So give us the pitch for the book. Why are the people going to be listening to it on the podcast? They need to read this and why does it matter? And they will read it and they will buy it. They will, because Neil will make them. Uh, (laughs) No, look, the pitch basically is I think we live, I mean, and it's ever more true. We live in times that can feel helpless. Uh, We live in times that can feel hopeless. The the story, the headlines of our times are enough to make anyone feel like that. But actually, I think what I'm offering and what I'm working with is a, is a way of seeing the moment in time we're living in that says, actually, this is as much a time of emergence and transformation, a much a time when a, a new story, a bigger story, maybe actually a very old story of who we are is taking shape and potentially taking hold, not just a time when a tired story of who we are is collapsing. And, and to do that, I, if I expand slightly beyond the elevator uh, period of time, unless we're going up to the 24th floor, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the, the, the basic uh, framework I offer, the, the set of lenses I offer, I talk about a, a shift from subject to consumer to citizen as the story of the individual in society, from, from a story that said that, that we are subjects, that the right thing to do is to keep our heads down and do as we're told because the God-given few know best and they'll lead us to the best outcomes for society through to we we moved from that story into a into what i call the consumer story broadly speaking the second half of the 20th century and in the consumer story the right thing to do is to look out for number one get the best deal for yourself on the basis that that self-interest will add up to collective interest and i think what we're living in right now is the collapse of the consumer story much as the subject story fell apart before and what we might be living in if we choose to be if our leaders choose to be part of it too if we can open it up together is what I call the citizen story, where the right thing to do is to get involved, to share your ideas, energy and resources, and to encourage others to do so as well, on the basis that the best society will result from that collective intelligence. Because all of us are smarter than any of us, all of us are better than any of us, that can come through. And I believe that is coming through. It's, it's there and ready. I was just referring to it in Zelensky as well. Um, but it's so it's not just a moral argument. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's an argument from from observation, not just from uh, ideals. Well, bring that bring that to life, John, because in the book, you focus in on some individuals, but you focus in some, you know, some brilliant case studies, examples. That's why the book's so good. So, I mean, I particularly like the, uh, the National Trust story. Do you want to just give us a quick insight into that one, a review of that one? Because I think that brings it to life for people. Sure. So the, the story of the National Trust, where a lot of these ideas formed for me, is essentially going into an organisation that was uh, very much trapped and co-opted by what, by the consumer story. It was a, it was operating as a visitor attraction business, uh, selling days out tickets to people with a conservation charity hidden somewhere in the background. Uh, you had sort of red point of sale selling membership to people. You had. Uh, you had, and, and the work we did really was about, I was involved in, was about saying, well, what if the, the relationship that matters here is the relationship between people and place? That, that if this is a citizen organization holding the space for people to connect to special places, for people to, for, for essentially a movement of people that care about beauty in special places, enabled by an organization rather than a, a visitor attraction business making money out of people and then spending it on something. And, and the, the sorts of things that resulted in were a rebranding of a staff cohort. I, I like to joke that, that when we started, they were, they were called wardens and they were the odd job men of the organization. And their job description was essentially to sort of jump out from behind trees at the last moment and protect them from children. Uh, through to, and then there's a marketing campaign called 50 Things to Do Before 11 and Three Quarters that, that is about reconnecting children and nature and, and and was crowdsourced from all of the things that everyone used to do and wanted to do when they were kids in order to develop that personal connection with nature rather than simply sort of a marketing message that was about selling the outdoors selling outdoor visitor days out to people so there's I think what's interesting about the National Trust as a case study in this is 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 really kind of taking it out of the realm just of just of government and politics, but also out even of business and saying like, no, this is a story that this, this, this phenomenon of these stories we tell ourselves and the, the institutions and structures and processes that grow out of them, I think have co-opted pretty much every aspect of our society, but equally 
the just as in, is the case in the National Trust, like I could talk to you about anyone from Macmillan to Parkinson's UK, that, that these organisations, I've talked about it as putting the organising back into organisations, sort of opening themselves up as, as movements rather than simply sort of seeing themselves as organisations doing things for people. Now, um, I, I should have I've jumped a, a bit and let's put two bits together and I'll ask a couple more questions then I'll come over to you, Sue. Um, you know, a, a question to you is that do we need a citizen building government? Is this just going to happen outside, external to the uh, established political system or is it going to be done with it? And in that, John, just, you know, because you have been a political, a party political operator as well. So just trying to put those two bits together and tell people where you're coming from in terms of where you've been in terms of that and what you think about the relationship between outside formal politics, you know, your the, the new citizen, the emerging citizenship you know, and formal politics. Yeah, and I, I want to sort of state up front in this a, a great debt and, 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 a, and a pride involvement in some of Compass and your thinking about 45 degree politics as well. I, and, and I and I should have uh, a 45 degree change. And I should I, I, I want to uh, acknowledge as many of these influences. I think we're, this this is all sort of part of the same kind of big change that we're all working towards, I think. I, to answer your question about, I'll sort of build through from my own political journey. I, I'm I'm one of the the Compass Lib Dem network. Uh, I came to party politics more through my work and this idea of a shift from subject to consumer citizen that I did through a kind of being a party political player before that. Um, I, and I, I actually came across a book by Paddy Ashdown that he wrote in, in 1989 called Citizens Britain, a radical agenda for the 1990s, which has in it basic income, universal shareholding, participatory democracy, like all of the good stuff uh, back in 1989. And, and also has a wonderful frame that, that Paddy offered where he talked about a choice between being citadel Britain and power centralising and Britain retreating behind the English Channel and being citizens Britain, where Britain engages on the national, on the international stage as a peer and where power is distributed at home. And, and he talks about this lovely phrase of like, the center of power is people's homes in all their messy, uh, in all their messiness. And which I don't know if he, he clearly didn't mean your home, Neil, it's very tidy. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I, ca I came to party politics sort of, sort of through that and I've actually kind of moved away again, really. I'm, I'm, and I guess if I, if I, Maybe I'll say a word about the, the the case study that in the book that most excited me, which is which is Taiwan, and sort of explain a bit why where I sit and maybe the the slight tension I have with forty five degree, and we might get into that more. But so what what happened in Taiwan for people? Um, and you'll have to read the book for the full case study. So I'll just do do as much as I can to be teasing, but but not all. <laughs> but um, but basically, go back to 2012. You had a you had a government trying to rush through, starting to rush through a trade deal with with China, uh, and and sending out messages. They they called it the economic power up plan. They were effectively saying to people, "Shush, little people, just go shopping." And, and people started to organise. And and what and in particular, a group of hackers who called themselves Gov Zero. And what they were doing was building uh, websites that were parallel to government websites with the URLs g0v.tw.g0v.tw, hence, hence Gov0. And what they were doing wasn't 
I don't think either what we might characterize as sort of outsider activity or really sort of reform activity. It was it was something like the kind of Buckminster Fuller quotes of of like creating the new system. Like if you want to create if you want to change something, don't fight the existing system, create the new one that makes the old obsolete. The Fuller quotes. And, and they were creating spaces where people could interact, where where people could actually experience government as being something we do together as shadow sites. And then, and then it all came to a head in 2014. There was a, there was a protest moment as the trade bill with China came to parliament and the, the parliament was occupied. And the, and the, the, the Gov Zero movement basically streamed what the protesters were doing in the parliament, which was effect, effectively debating the clause of this trade bill. And, and, and what that built was this incredible energy. And then, and then in the critical moment, the Speaker of the Parliament said, this is what democracy looks like. This is what this space is for. And interestingly, he was a member of the, of the right-wing governing party at the time, uh, at least a little like our Speaker sort of set it aside, but, was, but formally was a member. So, so what happened in that moment was, I think that GovZero had created a sort of alternative paradigm really for, for democracy in Taiwan. And then in that moment of challenge, the speaker acknowledged it. And from that, and that was a, a real huge inversion point. So from then, one of the leaders of the hacker movement very quickly became a mentor to a government minister, then became a minister herself, uh, it was actually the, the, the Taiwanese minister in charge of their COVID response. They did all sorts of stuff in COVID, like, I mean, everything from online sort of digital challenges, like open source software challenges through to, they even set up a phone line where any citizen could ring in with ideas for how the country's response could be better with a voicemail recorded by the president herself. So all of which is really to say, I think I, I, I have found myself like, starting not very political starting quite naive honestly and i talked about sort of buying the story of everyone go shopping and then and and having to sort of have a voyage of discovery out of that i've then lent more and more towards formal politics and now i'm in a space where i think actually how do we how come i think the theory of change that that is underneath what's happened in taiwan that kind of how do you create the spaces uh, adjacent to formal politics, uh, adjacent to the existing system, that the and, and leave the door open for the system to step into. I think is is more where I am politically. So I'll hand over to you now, Sue. But that kind of puts us in a kind of halfway house between Buckmaster Fuller and that create the alternative paradigm. And there's a great line in the book that you use, John, where you say we can't have a paradigm shift without a paradigm to shift to, which is obviously absolutely right, but it's just like beautifully put. It's a bit that, and it's a bit across between, obviously, uh, Milton Friedman's uh, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. We would say more than ideas, we'd say you know, institutions as well. So I think it's a com combination of those two bits of theory of change that we need to put together. Sue Goss, you've read the book, and you think about these things, and your knowledge about these things. What did you think about the book, and what are your reflections? Can I just say I'm very nervous at this point because I'm a major <laughs> admirer of Sue's work and I'm like, oh, oh my God, what quite, was she Quite doing? right, quite right. We should <laughs> well, all be terrified. Mutual Admiration Society in place. Um, I mean, uh, across the Compass family, I think loads of people have been witnessing the same shift and trying to write about it. And compared to a lot of those books, I think yours is so accessible, which is really important. It doesn't assume great academic knowledge of the last three decades. Uh, it doesn't assume Marxist theory. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, a, 
it's a, it's couched in a language of, you know, you talk about emotion, you talk about grief, you talk about trust, you talk about the things that we feel. And you, with great generosity, it seems to me, tell the story of people that have inspired you and quote and reference of other people. And I really like the, the simple but very carefully nuanced way that you have distinguished these three stories, the subject story, the consumer story, and the citizen story, in a way that makes complete sense, it seems to me, without you know having too much complicated theory behind them. But within that, you know, I think there are some very profound ideas that I'm still thinking through and still exercising me. So pick, I'm going to pick a couple of them, but, but, and there's others, there's many others. Every page, you know, I think, oh, that's it. Oh, and I've got, you know, my, my copy's got loads of piece of paper stuck in it with all the interesting things I want to be able to go back to. So the first idea, which I found really, really interesting, was the idea of citizenship as a practice and not as a status. And that idea of citizenship as a practice, I mean, it does two things. One is it rescues us from the argument on the left about whether the concept of citizenship is excluding people who aren't proper citizens. Because if citizenship is a practice, then we define our own citizenship by our behaviour and by the way we work. And, and pushing that even further, I've been thinking all day about life as a practice, not as an achievement or an accumulation or a fate. And, and that whole idea of practice, I've found really, really helpful. Um, and you've got a great discussion also about belonging and becoming, which I found interesting. And the second for me is the recognition of NGOs and private sector companies having a citizen role. So that citizen behaviour isn't just for people, individuals, it's for organisations. And that, I think, enables us not to let them off the hook of how they contribute or cease to contribute. So I think that's been really helpful. How do we explore their citizenship role? How do we hold them to account for that citizenship role? Just on that, on the citizenship as practice versus rather than status, partly because Tony, Tony and Stella, I'm not sure whether it's one of you or both posting in the chat a verb, not a noun, perhaps. And I think that for those, if people are listening, listening and thinking, how do I get my head around this? I think that verb, not noun distinction is a really powerful way of thinking about it. And I'd strongly recommend anyone who hasn't check out um, Baratunde Thurston's podcast, How to Citizen. Uh, Baratunde is a really fascinating guy working in the States. He's a producer on The Daily Show and, and The Onion. And so he's a, he's a sort of popular culture figure. Uh, and and that, that idea of, of citizenship as practice, citizenship as like a, an orientation to the world rather than a status you hold. I actually sometimes, some ways go further and would go like, if we let um, citizenship become just the status, that is actually the consumerization of citizenship. It, it's allowing citizenship to become a product, I think, yeah, you buy it. rather than a, and, and even be bought, as you say. And, and I think there's something really important to emphasize in this. And one of the reasons I wrote the book and why I made the title Citizens, despite having advice to the contrary, was that I, I really believe it's vital that we as and I don't even necessarily identify particularly as on the left. Uh, certainly, I, 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 but but those of us who 
believe in trying to create a better world uh, to fight for and defend the language of citizen. Because if we let it go, I think we're giving up a, an incredibly important uh, tool in, in the armory, as it were. Um, some of the work I do in the book is like going into the etymology of that word and, find, and talking about how it literally translates as together people, people who can only be understood in relationship to one another. Um, so yeah, thank you for calling that out. Well, so I guess where I want to go with this, I guess in conversation with you and Neil, is is about where the state fits into all this. Uh, you know, you, you had that interesting sort of teaser about, well, maybe we leave the door open to system leaders. But I mean, the state isn't simply another participant in a citizen society because the state has convening and regulatory power and I guess the question of how state power fits into this, for me, is the difficult end of the conversation. You know, so how can state power be used to create the conditions for citizenship? You start to talk about that in terms of basic income. I think I absolutely agree with you. That's one of the conditions for uh, citizenship. Um, there's other things the state could do. Uh, a four-day week you know, reduce working hours so that we have time to do our citizen stuff, you know, protecting the BBC, protecting the public realm. So there's a sort of what is it that we expect a state to do to be able to be citizens? And then even further, I think, if you think about the, 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 the climate emergency, what does the state in a citizen relationship what can it ask of us that it can't ask of us in a consumer relationship? If the state is simply being something that sells us things and, you know, gives us services, you know, if, if, if in a way we consume the state, then it can ask nothing back. But there's something about what's the relationship between citizens in a democracy and their state, which is organising on behalf of all of us, which enables it to ask things of us. And I guess the giving things up, which I'm sort of in my head, I'm thinking in the next two decades, we all have to give things up to save the world. And how does the state or, or, or what's the role of the state? What's the role of the citizen? What's the role of us collectively in being able to ask things of each other? And how do we get that to work? So I suppose so that so I'm interested in what you think about that. And then finally, Okay, so what might this mean for a political program or a political party? What do we want Ed Davey or Keir Starmer to do? But then I thought, ah, uh, 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 citizen, what do we want them to be? Might be an interesting question. And how might we get them there? So that's that's where I want to go in conversation. How, you know, how do you, how, how, where, where, where can we take that? There's so much in that. It's a wonderful question. I, I guess. Um... I, th I mean, I think you rightly say that one of the places I've tried to go is uh, as a starting point, at least, and talking about what a, a citizen's Britain might look like, kind of borrowing Paddy's language and, and trying to bring it up to up to date, is about the enabling conditions, like the starting point being put more power in more people's hands through basic income, through devolution, through uh, through deliberative institutions. I think deliberative yeah. and participatory democracy have a, have a massive role to play. I, um, I'm not sure I necessarily would go as far as, uh, I, I, I don't know enough about four day week. I haven't really got, but I'm so, but, 
but I think that idea of enabling conditions is certainly a, a role of the state. I guess I'm, I see the kind of the part about asking of us a little differently. So I was on I I, I was on a radio show uh, on Sunday, um, and one of the people who was on it before me was a guy from uh, it was a Polish uh, uh, Politico journalist. And he described what's been going on in Poland in the last couple of weeks, well, in the last few days, actually, where they've received, like, people have been driving to the border and queuing up to, to sort of take, take Ukrainian citizens into their homes and their families. He described it as Poland's Dunkirk moment. And there was so much in that that I just thought, wow, like, I mean, obviously so much, like, horror at our own state and, and how far we, we how far this government falls short of the ideals that we espoused in the in the second world war right but but also like as a citizen thing that idea that it's not so much a sacrifice as an opportunity right like it's a kind of like we can we can do this we have a role to play i am i i have something important to do here and i think and i think that's maybe what i would refer to in what Zelensky has done as well the way he has spoken and like that speech that he gave if people haven't seen it the speech that Zelensky gave on on I think it was 24th of February where he starts by saying something along the lines of um uh I'm addressing it's in Russian I aimed at Russian citizens he says I I come here to speak to you to you the, the the citizens of Russia not as president he explicitly says not as president but as a citizen of Ukraine speaking to my peers and and the, and then he closes that speech and he's sort of talking about friendship and brotherhood and da 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 and, and he closes the speech by saying, and I'm also speaking to the rest of the world, please share this, like send it around, like get it through, get it past the Russian census. And, and that sort of invocation of us, what, what Zelensky is doing in a way, imagine if Ursula von der Leyen were to make a speech addressing Russian citizens in Russia and ask the people of Europe, expressing the friendship of Europe and, and, and asking us to share it. Imagine if, if Europe were to flip around the, 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 the convention on the future of Europe, which is deeply flawed as a participatory structure and turn it into a kind of a participate, an authentic participatory democracy process on how the EU gets off Russian gas. Imagine it, I, I could go on and on, but that sort of um, the state, not so much asking for sacrifice as offering the opportunity for meaningful contribution. Like if we see ourselves as citizens and we, we acknowledge that that is the deeper truth of who we are and we imagine what our leaders might be able to tap into if where they were to see that and speak to it, I just think like in some ways I don't really feel and maybe you'll you and Neil might say I'm copping out but I don't necessarily feel the need to articulate a perfect role of the state I just feel the need to open to sort of for I mean those moments would be so transformative those are moments that would be at the scale I believe of of speaker Wang in Taiwan saying this is democracy could result and the, the momentum that would flow from there but yeah that's my first thought anyway. Let, let's let some more citizens into this. So, Gabriel, Compass Citizens, let's get let's get some questions to to John and um, and where Sue wants to come back in. Um, Sue, come in as well. So, over to you, Gabriel. Thank you. Thanks, Neil, and thanks, John and Sue, for that great discussion. Okay, kicking things off for us, our first citizen. We've got a question from David Parker. I think you've probably anticipated this question from something that Sue said. You've clearly had it before, but as you were talking, I couldn't about your um consumer and your, your citizen uh, phases of development i couldn't help but thinking 
that there were a lot of people were and are excluded from consumer uh, roles and likely to be excluded uh, from the sort of civic, uh, uh, the, the, the civil society organisations that you described. Thanks very much for that, David. Okay, the next question comes from Paul Cottrell. John, a sort of compassy-specific kind of question, kind of it's, you know, compasses sort of a safe space for liberal, weirdy liberals like you uh, to enter the, the democratic socialist space, so uh, uh, a little bit of that. Uh, can I have a zone in on page 104, um, if you want to get it up while I'm, re- while I'm reading the question? You're pretty scathing, in sort of even mocking of um, professionals as compared to amateurs. You give it the amateurs etymology as lovers and stuff to do any kind of proper citizening. Um, do you really not think there's any scope for the repurposing of sort of professionals? Well, remind you that the etymology of that is taking a public vow to do their best away from their own community, consumer story towards a capacity to citizen. For example, where we're just seeing maybe they're starting to see that amongst care workers getting a sort of wider citizen approach to, to their own work and, and, and what goes beyond their work and within their work. Uh, I ask that because if you don't, isn't that in itself just refeeding the consumer story? If you say that we are to be consumers of the professional services, but can critique those. Thanks, Paul. Close reading of the text. That's what we. That's what we like to hear. David, firstly, the the the, the question of like. I absolutely agree that there are so many conditions that are not in place for people, for so many people to be able to contribute as citizens. And I, and I think, um, like, and to, to describe it almost as a sort of hygiene factor, and I think that's right. Uh, but the, I think what, what I would sort of maybe pull out and reiterate a, li- a little bit on this is if you start, if we can step into this kind of mindset, where we see everyone as, where we see one another as citizens, where we see each other as creative, collaborative, caring creatures who who sort of can and want to get involved if the conditions are created to enable that, then then I think we we reframe that whole debate because it becomes much less about... much it, it stops being to the to the Doug Kirk moment example it's not that it, that is an opportunity it's sort of unleashing people's contribution refugees become people who are going to enrich our society the, the, the those who don't have who are short of money become a, a ridiculous like failure of the state to to give people the opportunity to 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 contribute what they're capable of and 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 on and on i could apply the same logic to to disability conversations as well um and have done and would really recommend people check out the work of people like Neil Crowther and Social Care Future and 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 actually of Paul Cottrell in a in a little bridge point there and some of what he's writing and saying. Paul, I would know you anywhere, my friend. Um, I think uh, on on the question of amateur and professional, I think um, if I have strayed in the direction of endorsing the amateur at the expense of the professional, it's it it has been in service of some degree of rebalancing i think the what i'm really trying to say though is i think we need uh it's not about uh replacing professionals with amateurs it's about the idea that there are there are multiple forms of expertise and multiple forms of contribution and we are at our best when we tap into all of those i'm particularly thinking and 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 i think i was writing in that context of, of things like uh 
so we've done some i've done quite a bit of work in in local authorities local councils i mean that language itself is is interesting right authority as a subject word and and the idea of councils as public service providers um and 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 so and and actually that that sort of mindset that consumer story has embedded itself in those structures to such an extent that actually professionals feel like they are failing if they don't provide the answers and the solutions for people it actually becomes a threat to the professional not to not to be able to solve it for people whereas and and titus i think titus alexander's posting in the chat as well we share more than a surname i think he's posting about um cormac russell's work on abcd asset-based community development this idea of cormac has this lovely phrase he says he talks about starting with what's strong to fix what's wrong uh and 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 i think that spirit of and 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 harnessing the energy and ideas from everywhere cormac also talks about like professionals helping while walking backwards not creating dependence on themselves but seeing their role in that sort of facilitative space rather than in the delivery space uh so so i think that's what i'm trying to do in that rather than rather than sort of rather than offer uh, a, a a total flip but uh yeah just coming on to this question of of uh, well the the observation which i completely agree with around uh the sort of quaker philosophy i i guess what i if i would say a yes and to that more than challenge it or anything else i think it's um i think i found it in i i'm not a religious person i've but i found it in in a formal sense but i found it in almost all religions in some way shape or form and it's in it's in sufism as opposed to islam the sort of mis- islamic mysticism it's in it's in some of the more open i've done quite a bit of work actually with york minster and they have this language at york minster they talk about they talk about inviting everyone to discover god's love as a as a way of thinking about the role of a of a place and a space and and the concept of god's love being a very open theological construct and and the idea of all of it has at its heart this kind of deep wisdom that 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 people are pretty cool, actually, uh, if we give ourselves a, a, a space and a place to be so. And and I, but I do think that kind of um, the idea of it being a way of being and a, and a mindset to hold is 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 in in is a is a quaker practice and 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 is in our, and is in many major religions. I know I know Quakerism isn't a religion per se in quite the same way, but. Yeah, I hope that's a, at least an interesting observation, if not necessarily a, a, a perfect one. Anything from you, Sue, on any of those? I think the whole question about how we unravel the terrible harm that has been done to professionals to stop them being citizen professionals and turn them into cogs in, in a machine that is consumer there's a whole debate but actually to enable professionals to be fully themselves as whole humans at work instead of some ghastly bureaucratic process let's go there as well that's all yeah Yeah. citizen professionals as opposed to consumer professionals i love that Or, or subject professionals for that matter while we're on that subject yeah okay gabriel let's get another another batch of questions in thank you Thanks, everyone. Uh, fascinating stuff. Okay, on to the next question. And this one comes from Anna Berrier. Anna, would you like to unmute yourself and put your question to the panel? Sure. Um, given that Compass, one of the strands of the good society that Compass is trying to campaign for is the uh, universal um, basic income, do, do the speakers think that introducing universal basic income would help? 
personally, I no longer need to work uh, and I can do quite a bit. I'm the chair of my parish council. I don't need to earn money to keep going. Um, it would be nice to see other people being able to do to do that before getting to 66. Thanks, Anna. Great question. The next one comes from Catherine Fish. Hello. I'm concerned about the ability of ordinary people to play the citizenship role that they would like to. For example, the state has rolled back our ability to be citizens over decades. We're now not able to take work time easily to be city councillors. We're not able to take time out to be magistrates very easily. That does two things which concern me. One, it disempowers citizenship people from being citizens, but it also creates a magistracy, for example, that's made up of people that are not representative of the rest of the population. And that brings me on to ask a question we also have to have, I suppose it links to the last question that was talking about universal basic income. Try being a good citizenship citizen when you have to spend your time proving to the people who dole out your universal benefit that you are spending all your time applying for jobs. There may be a little bit of time at the end of the day, but your motivation, your levels of depression, exhaustion, countermand all of that. And I think we have to start at how do we empower people by giving them the financial um, and other um, incentives to do this. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, okay, and one more from Mary Marshall. Mary? We're already seeing a fragmentation of services through this idea of big society. But how do you get over the thing that you will get some enthusiastic people in one place and you have great services or, or great offering? And in some places, you won't have anything at all. And so you end up with the worst postcode lottery than we've got already. How would you stop that from happening? So I feel like the, the thing that I've that might be worth doing is just saying a quick word about the, the political project. I think this is part of your question as well, Sue. Maybe I didn't. Uh, uh, maybe I can say a word more. I think... Uh, what what I've offered in the in the book as a starting point more than anything, but it, but I like I say I'm not sure we need more than start much more than starting points. I'm, uh, is a is a three point sort of three three point set of priorities, I, and universal basic income is absolutely the start the the basis for me. Like the the idea of the, uh, for all the reasons that Anna said, uh, just yes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I do talk about that in the book and I've, I've been very active in the basic income conversation. We did a wonderful event bringing um, Michael Tubbs, the, the, mayor, the former mayor of Stockton, California, who's now runs Mayors for a Guaranteed Income over here. I would love to see Compass, for example, try and make Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, Tubbs's US organization into, a, into an international organization by getting some UK mayors behind it. I think that could be a very powerful way of doing things. Um, the second, so basic income. The second part of what I, I talk, I've talked about is um, is is deliberative and participatory institutions. I think citizens' assemblies and and these sorts of structures are fundamental to this. And and but partly because they they do get over they, they, these representative structures, representative samples, mini publics, 
do get past an awful lot of this thing and, and can be paid and, and can mean there's a proposal in Canada called the Democratic Action Fund, which would see enough citizens assemblies created on an annual basis that within five years, every citizen of Canada would either have been part of a citizens assembly on a key national policy issue or would know someone who had. And what that would do to the idea of the relationship between citizen and state, the idea that being a citizen is not just about voting, I think is profound. And then, the, and, and I could talk about more, like people should check out what's going on with the Chilean Citizens Convention on the Constitution. It's astonishing. You should see what's going on in Paris, where there's now a standing citizens assembly that oversees the Paris elected council and is part of allocating 100 million euros of participatory budgeting a year. Like this stuff is happening. And then, so for first, universal basic income, second, deliberative and participatory institutions. The third, uh, I would say, is, is, is pushing power out to, to the local level and beyond. And I think this is the one where arguably there is most traction in the UK at the moment, this idea of community power uh, and, and the work Compass, I know, are doing with, with, with the Labour Party in particular on, on new power and, and powering up is, instead of levelling up, I think is, is critical and really powerful, like in every sense of the word, like the idea of, of changing this narrative so it's not just about doling out some cash depending on uh, to, to whoever they want to and port barrel politics, it's actually about power, I think could be really, um, really wonderful and very very potentially collaborative ground between Labour and the Liberal Democrats in this country. I think it, 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 it ought to be. And I think actually all three of those things ought to be collaborative ground that, that Compass, Compass could play a major role in. I still think personally that the, the, the stuff that I feel most drawn to work on is is maybe more about the the kind of the puncturing the, the consciousness. I, I was saying to Neil that there's a a thought experiment for people like i talked about what if what if the the uh when extinction rebellion had had their first uh rebellion and they were demanding a citizens assembly on the climate and then one was set up even though it wasn't to the to the sort of to this to the timeline and with the powers that the the xr had wanted if xr what they did was they they essentially ignored it said it's not good enough and and carried on if they had in that moment in time, and I say this with huge love and admiration for everyone in XR, but if they had chosen to hold rebellions on the weekends of that citizens assembly meeting, of the climate assembly meeting, if they had chosen to point energy and power at it and say, this is the future of our democracy, this is, this is what the people are wanting as a minimum, and we could go further. I just wonder what that what that moment could have been and 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 i don't say that like i say to look back wistfully so much as to go what are the future moments we could create and that's sort of where i feel personally drawn to work right now but i hope that maybe makes a bit more sense of the the kind of political implications i think this i, I absolutely agree with the m many of the comments from the floor of like you have to give put you have to give people the ability the the conditions the space the the resources to be able to be citizens there are preconditions for citizenship and there has to be power meaningful power in people's hands for it to be applied i think any any final reflections from you so so i just want to extend i guess the question about the new paradigm if it's a citizen paradigm into the realm of party politics because it seems to me we've had this sort of retail offer of politics where you know a couple of focus groups tell the political party leaders what's going to go down as a popular sell to the people and then you string together a load of 
of offers to the people. So we treat politics as if that's a something that's a consumer thing. And I, I guess that that very profound point that was made about the, the, the Quaker way is that actually politics needs to become about a way of living, a way of being, a practice. And if that's the case, I think we need to start bringing into the political debate and putting political leaders on the spot about what are the minimum requirements for a functioning democracy, the devolution, the basic income, the shorter working week, the including people with disability, enabling people to have full, you know, that's, that's not, that's the basis of a decent democracy. And if we don't ask our politicians and our political leaders to construct that with us, then in a way they're living in some weirdo consumer world, despite the, the thinking that, that we're doing. So I think we do need to bring it back to the politicians. Just one final point, which is about, you know, devolution and postcode lottery. We need a whole session on it. But actually, the answer is not centralisation. It's proliferation and copying um, and, and finding ways of helping to move into those spaces, but not to say, well, let's not devolve then. Um, but that's another conversation. Well done, John. I thought that was really interesting. And, and, and let's, let's finish there, John, with that, you know, Sue was leading me into it as ever. That, you know, do you agree that, you know, the challenge for the future is between a deeper democracy or a kind of authoritarian populism? And the rise of authoritarian populism is because we are not citizens. We don't have a deeper democracy. This is getting this is getting very, very pertinent now, isn't it? And very hot and very relevant and very urgent. Do you think? Yes, I think I think. uh I, I still see it through the lens of subject consumer citizen. I see I see a subject story roaring back, and I think that's that's a lot of what you're speaking to—a kind of authoritarian future. I also see the consumer story roaring back in a very different way, and I think the kind of some of the ways that not all some of the ways are great, but some of the ways that Web three is being talked about, some of the ways that like the idea that that that. Elon Musk's Dogecoin could become the global reserve currency or like the, the sovereign individuals like Peter Thiel who are buying up farms in New Zealand and like that that is a consumer story uh, dystopian future I think I think there are there are two distinct dystopias that are now becoming very very real and I think that gives urgency to name an alternate name an alternative and just finishing on that note that you called out Neil I, I that 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 phrase that you can't have paradigm shift without a paradigm to shift that's what I'm that's what I'm most trying to say. I think like there is a paradigm emerging. I haven't created it. I'm what I'm trying to do. I think is is offer offer a name for something that helps us see that what the National Trust are doing, what the Taiwanese government are doing, what startups like Yup and Technology Will Save Us are doing, are all part of a citizen a potent naming and creating and what compass are doing of course what 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 naming and creating a citizen future as a paradigm that we can shift to that is already here the old is not yet dead the new is not yet born um, in the interregnum we need the, him back. The, the morbid the future is here it's just patchy yeah <laughs> it, it's all of that and more no, that was a fantastic conversation i think we've lost luke but that was great of him to join us and we'll go back to that when and how, uh, when and how we need to but thank you so much john 
in particular, you know, and, and Sue for that great uh, conversation. The next podcast will be at six o'clock as ever on Tuesday, the 22nd of March, when Francis will be joined by some special guests from the USA to look at the Biden administration and its successes and possible weaknesses. If we want to have that conversation about, you know, Trumpism and, pop- and, and authoritarian populism, it's coming down the track. So join us on the 22nd of March for that brilliant conversation. Until then, again, thank you so much, John. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Luke. Thank you to all our members on the call and being great citizens and having such a great chat and such great questions and such great links to to all sorts of work. Um, On the podcast, if you haven't joined us yet, please do so. Um, We need you and you need a compass. And the last line of the book says this. It says, what would you do in this time if you truly believed in yourself and those around you? That feels very compass to me. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, Sue. Take care, everyone. Uh, Keep safe, keep well, keep hopeful, and we'll see you again soon. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at neil, N-E-A-L underscore compass or compass at compass office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.